Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scuff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Do you recognize this quote? Kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid to find out that there are so many of them in the world. So said Anne in the famed Canadian namesake novel, Anne of Green Gables. I don't know why, but this idea of kindred spirits or best friends stuck with me from this novel when my teacher introduced the book to us in grade six. Now, back then, as a typical boy, I wondered and even quipped, why are we reading a book about a girl, <laughs> right? Give me Hardy Boys or Famous Five. But for some reason, even as a kid, my attitude changed uh, when my teacher explained that the story is set in Canada. 
And so even something as 11 or 10 or 11 years old at the time, something about the story being set in my home and native land uh, gave me appreciation for the book. Meaning something about knowing the context of even a book about a girl uh, increased my appreciation for the story. Now the Psalms are similar in the sense that we can't just take them as isolated one-off prayers and songs. Can't just pick your favorite psalm and say, that's my favorite psalm. No, we're, we're meant to read the psalms in context. They're the prayers of God's people set in a grand story and even sometimes perilous journey of the redemption of God's people. And the psalms themselves tell the story of God's people. And they're like a soundtrack, if you will, of the epic movie of God's people where the lyrics and themes of the songs brilliantly match God's work in redemptive history. And so recall, the Psalms are divided into five books. Um, I'm pretty sure in your printed Bible or even in your digital Bible, at the right places, you'll see the heading, book one or book two, book three, and up to book five. The past two weeks, we looked at Psalms from books one and two, Remember book one's main theme, uh, Psalms 1 to 42, or 41, is a call to covenant faithfulness. It's establishing the picture of God's relationship with his people in covenant. Book two is, uh, the main theme is a hope for the future reign of the messianic kingdom. And today's Psalm, Psalm 73, is the first Psalm in book three, And the main theme of book three is continuing to hope. It's continuing the theme of book two, but specifically when you're discouraged. Trying to remember his promise for his final future victorious messianic kingdom, but specifically when you feel you're in exile, spiritual exile. Now, Psalm 73, in terms of a timeline, was written during the time of the kings, well before the exile of Israel, But then the Psalms, we know in history, were compiled uh, during the time of exile by the leaders of Israel as a resource, as an encouragement to get through this difficult time. And the Spirit put the wisdom in their hearts that this Psalm, even though it's from way back during the kings before exile, that it is so pertinent and relevant while going through exile. And so it's my prayer that we would respond by faith to Psalm 73 today with a prayer, something in the manner of this. Lord, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's just pulled straight from the Psalm towards the end. That's something by faith you would cry out in your heart, Lord, you are my strength and my portion and especially forever, okay? Now we know the, the Christianity that God calls us to is faith that overflows happily, gladly into works. And so uh, a work that I want to commend to us today in response of faith that we would work this out in our lives in this way. So help me live on earth well while keeping an eye on eternity well. Okay? That's a really important good work each and every day that you keep returning to that mindset, that attitude. And this aim is especially necessary in our times as we live in a new moral majority, especially in Canada, to keep our eye well on eternity. So for the rest of our time meditating on Psalm 73 today, I want to ask, um, how do I live on earth well 
while keeping an eye on eternity well. And I want to draw out, I see three things, that, at least three things I'd like to draw out. I think the psalmist wants us to see. First, understand life 1.0. Okay? I, I see three versions of life in today's psalm. So first we're to understand life 1.0, lament life 2.0, and third, delight in life 3.0. So let's dive in. Life 1.0. We need to understand it. If we're going to live well on earth while keeping an eye on eternity well, we need to understand life 1.0. Now, what do I mean by understanding life 1.0? And here's what I mean. First, the notion that every good story has a beginning. Every good book has a prologue or chapter one. And you can't just pick up a story in the middle. Otherwise, you won't have context. You won't know how the story has developed, and you won't be able to appreciate to the fullest just even the conclusion. It will be very difficult to understand a story, to appreciate it properly if you only read the last chapter, only the first chapter, and not the whole book. And so we got to go back to the beginning. Now, when I say understand life 1.0, I'm asking us to see that the psalmist is taking us back to a beginning of sorts, the first version of life. Now, what is life 1.0 according to the psalmist? Simply put, it's God's conditional love. That was life 1.0. The way God related to us was a conditional love. You and I having to earn God's love through our obedience, our good works. Now, where do we see this? Look at verse 1 with me and how the psalmist begins the prayer. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is all the more why book three that is struggling with suffering in the believer's life starts this way. God, I'm trying to do good, so where are my rewards? Psalm 73 is the first book, first psalm of book three, and so recall book three is about persevering and fighting to hope in God despite what you see out there in your own circumstances, in life out there, and holding on to the vision for life as we would have it, though it seems really bleak. More specifically, book three and Psalm 73 to kick it off is about continuing to hope in God while in exile, while lamenting the suffering of God's people in spiritual exile. And in that context, the psalmist points God's people back to the beginning by declaring, truly God is good to Israel. First, the psalmist is remembering all of God's favor and kindness in the story of Israel. And more specifically, we're to remember God's original arrangement with Israel, that God is good, specifically to those who are pure in heart. And so he's looking back to their story and remembering the times that as a people, they did do right and God blessed them and believing that, why isn't God continuing to do that? Now, Israel's story, it goes all the way back to Abraham, Moses, Noah, and even back to the very beginning with Adam. You see, from Adam to the Israelites, through Moses, God's blessing originally, 1.0, it's conditional. That's why the fall happened. It's real. That's why there's, there's the effects of sin in life, because Adam was 
meant to obey, but because God's love was conditional at the very beginning, he fell, and now we face all the consequences. So if we take verse 1 at face value, then God's goodness is a reward for those who are pure in heart. Receiving God's goodness depends on you and I being righteous, being pure, sinless in heart. Going back to Adam, the very beginning of life 1.0, God's original covenant was with Adam's work. And we know that Adam and Eve, they failed in their work, what they were called to do, to obey. Now, here's the point. This is how life was meant to be. 1.0. And Israel was continuing to live in that kind of conditional love through the law, because that's what the law is, that if you obey and are able to perform to this standard, then you can be saved. But we know that life 1.0 quickly failed, because which of us can confidently say that we actually are pure in heart, perfectly pure in heart? In fact, Our Lord himself, Jesus himself, affirms this highest standard of being pure in heart in the introduction to his most famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. And so the only two places that this expression of being pure in heart is used, Psalm 73 and the Beatitudes. Jesus' point is to raise God's moral standard. His whole Sermon on the Mount, if you understand it correctly, he's raising the standard of God's righteousness even higher than the law. He wants there to be no doubt about the intensity and height of God's holiness and requirements for righteousness on his people. And so Jesus wants to dispel any confusion of how righteous and pure in heart you need to be. Now the point is, the effect needs to be Psalm 73, verse 1, and Sermon on the Mount are to leave us wanting and needing God's grace that much more. So that's why we need to consider the next point, um, lamenting, lamenting life 2.0. Life 2.0, in a nutshell, sin has its effect. Life goes completely off the rails. There's tension beginning in the home, in the family, between husband and wife, with our work, with one another. There's sickness and disease and ultimately death. There's war and strife. There's spiritual uh, tension and there's an enemy that is after us to keep us away from God. And so we're called to lament life 2.0. Life changed when Adam and Eve sinned. Life changes when you and I and Israel fail to be pure in heart, to obey. And so the psalmist, he identifies with life 2.0, with life broken by sin. Now where do we see this? He does a quick recap of life 1.0 in verse 1, and then he spends verses 2 to 15 just lamenting life 2.0. And so he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. And so first he's describing a precarious time in his life where morally he was on a shaky ground. Now, it, we could hear here, we could interpret this as him saying, but ultimately I didn't sin. But I don't think that's what he's saying. First, let's back up a bit and just appreciate the psalmist's honesty and confession. 
He knows that he lives on the precipice of sin, the cliff edge of just being imperfect before God. He walks that thin line between a pure heart and a sin-tainted heart. But I think the psalmist is, is saying something very much stronger. He's not saying that he didn't sin. What he's saying is that he almost stumbled and slipped, and I think he's referring to actually abandoning his faith altogether. He's breaking covenant with God. Now, why do I say this? Because, in fact, the psalmist does confess some sin. He has indeed sinned in his heart before the Lord. Listen to his confession. It's right there. It follows right in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Certainly, the psalmist knew the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. You shall not envy. In fact, all the commentators agree the psalmist here is confessing his sin, that he committed the, you know, he broke the 10th commandment. The psalmist is readily, humbly confessing his guilt and shame to the Lord and as a cautionary testimony to you and me, to God's people. Now, what did the psalmist covet of the godless? For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Now, let me try to chew on that for us a bit and and just put it down to everyday words. I think what he coveted was their comfort and their luxury, the plenty that made those he envied fat and sleek and shiny. They, They were impressive. He's actually describing from a worldly standpoint really, uh, just uh, enviable things. When the psalmist describes their eyes swelling out through fatness, he means to say something similar to when we describe someone's uh, lust or, or appetite with the expression, their eyes are bigger than their stomach, meaning they think they can just have whatever they want. He speaks to this, this, this strut, this swagger. They talk cockily. You see it all the time in sports. Just, you know, we're going to crush you. We're going to take you down. You're nothing. Just trash talking in a sense. It comes from a very arrogant uh, spirit. And they throw around the weight of their clout, their power, their influence, and they get away with bullying and barking their way up the ladder of success. Oftentimes, sadly, in this world, in this world system, that's how you get ahead. You're, 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 more of a bully than the next person. You force your way into it. You domineer. And so the psalmist laments. He looks out on how the world works and how he's tried to not go by the world's system to be different as a God follower, but he's not seeing the results. And so he laments. All in vain have I kept my heart clean He's wondering, he's genuinely wondering, was this all worth it to follow God the way I have? For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, 
I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So what's the psalmist's point? I think he has two points. First, as I've said, he's, he's wondering if it's been worth it to try and be pure-hearted. On one hand, he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. And, and we need to take this, and when he says, and washed my hands in innocence, we need to understand this on, at one level very literally. The psalmist would have sought to be faithful to the law of Moses, and there are a lot of uh, instructions there, even literally washing your hands to clean your heart. A lot of ceremonies to try to make yourself clean in body and soul before God. And he's wondering, me following all these commandments of God, was it worth it? Was it worth it? But also he's asking and wondering, he's evaluating, has God blessed me and made me prosperous like the non-God followers that I envy? And so a second point is that no matter how hard he tries, he can't keep his heart as pure as he thought he could, and he's not getting the results that he thought God should give him based on this conditional love. I'm doing my part, God. Where are your blessings and rewards in my life? I don't know if you're ever assigned to be the duster at home, but when I dust, it's so frustrating because the next day there's already another layer. And so, like dust, he tries to wipe the dust of his sin away, and as soon as he wipes away the dust of his sin, more dust appears. In vain has he tried to keep his heart clean. In fact, he goes on to describe very painfully, pointedly, specifically, he senses the Lord convicting him all through the day. Verse 14, for all the day long, all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Every morning, his alarm clock is the spirit convicting him. You haven't lived up to as pure as you need to be. Your hands aren't as clean as you think they are. His conscience is convicted every morning. It's the Lord here that is rebuking him every morning. And so the psalmist says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now, what he's saying here is, I kept all these thoughts to myself. And I didn't tell other people about what I was really thinking and going through. Now, we need to, Think a little bit deeper about that because let's be logical here. He has told the world and history of what he was actually thinking because it's recorded forever in Psalm 73, God's word. It's there in the canon and he's left his actual thoughts and what he was thinking for all generations to come. So he did speak out loud what he's thinking. So he means something more here means something more. And what we need to understand is that he was lamenting. But there's a difference between lamenting and doubting. There's a difference between just venting to God and lamenting and doubting. The psalmist, he's giving us permission, and God, by virtue of through the psalmist, he's giving us permission to vent to God. We are to never ultimately doubt God and his goodness, his promises. But God gives us a way to pour out our hearts, to 
be truly ministered to in our darkest moments. And so we need to understand the difference between lamenting by faith versus doubting faith itself. And the psalmist here, he's lamenting. He's lamenting life 2.0, the broken life. And we're to learn, we're to learn how to lament. It, it, it would make me happy as a pastor if you can walk away from today and have another practical spiritual discipline in your toolbox to make lament a part of your conversation with God. And so we do ourselves well to slow down and understand Christian lament, biblical lament. So what is lament? First, here's a simple definition. Lament is anger or grief processed through spoken or written words. It's you actually taking the time to process and express anger or grief through spoken or written words. Now, here's something important to understand. You feel anger or grief in your heart on the inside, but you articulate and express outwardly anger and grief through lament. Lament is you doing the hard work of pulling out what you're feeling and expressing it through words written or spoken, especially to God for the Christ follower. Now, biblical lament has a few important characteristics, and as one commentator put it so clearly, so I'm just going to pass on how this commentator summarized it. Three important ingredients. It's a way to process emotion. We all need to grow and mature. One work of a disciple, one way God um, redeems us is to, to understand our emotions that much more healthily. And lament is an important part and way to process our emotions. It's a place to voice confusion. God gives us permission to be confused before him. And hopefully as the church, as we come together and it's a truly safe place of grace, we can be confused with one another and, and our brothers and sisters helping us to see more clearly. But it also can be a form of protest, a way of drawing people's attention, including God's. Attention to the horrible things that happen in this world that you feel should not be tolerated. And God gives us permission to lament in this way. You read through the Psalms, and if you're honest of face value, what the psalm, a lot of the psalmists are doing, they're protesting to God. God, where are you? You're supposed to be good to Israel. I thought you were the one who is kind to those who are pure in heart. And so we should never forget, never forget. Let it never be lost on us. The most agonizing, painful lament in history is from our Lord himself. Hanging on the cross, quoting the lament in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So lament is not looked down in the Bible. Lament gives sacred dignity to our suffering. And it's a gateway to genuine repentance and redemption from our sin and suffering. Sometimes before we get to that all-important place of finally just surrendering to God and repenting with utter hum true humility, we need that lament first. We need to go through the lamenting. So I want you to see with me then that the psalmist is lamenting both his own sin. 
He confesses his sin earlier. I envied. But he's also lamenting the injustices that he sees as he looks out on life 2.0. God's people are suffering in exile, but those who reject God prosper. How is this fair, God? The psalmist thought that the Lord is meant to be good to his people, to those pure in heart. And yet the psalmist is fully aware of his own envious heart and that he's not as pure in heart as he should be. So what is the psalmist's hope in this moment then? He's lamenting, he's even seeing his own sin, even as he's trying to reconcile that with unfairness and injustice in life. And that's why we need today's third point. We need to delight in life 3.0. There is a life 3.0 to come, a final chapter. And Psalm 73 takes a beautiful turn towards this life 3.0. If you've ever driven across the States, I remember when I was driving across at one point, moving back to Canada, I drove through the Eisenhower Tunnel uh, in the Colorado Rockies. And it was a long, it felt like a dark tunnel for a long time. But then once you broke out to the other side, then all the glory of the Snow Peak Mountains just burst open before your eyes. That's what Psalm 73 is like. The first 15 verses are dark. And then the last 13 verses are gloriously bright. And the psalmist teaches us how to live well on earth by living well with an eye on eternity. We live well on earth, especially this world of life 2.0, when it seems bleak, by keeping an eye on eternity, on life 3.0. There's a final version of life to come, the best version. And that's the secret sauce of Christian faith, so to speak. The main meat is Jesus himself and what he's done, but the sauce is, it needs to be eternity, the context of eternity. So let's learn from the psalmist about life 3.0. Let's start with his final conclusion and work backwards. What's the psalmist's conclusion? See how the psalmist has his eyes opened to God's wonderful love for him and how the psalmist cannot help but love God with all his heart because of what he sees. The conclusion is this, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's figuring out the tension. He knows he needs to live life on earth well by keeping an eye on eternity well. Seeing God in heaven, but also experiencing God's presence with him on earth. The psalmist's only final hope is God himself. Ever doubted? that God wants a personal relationship with you. Let me also offer Psalm 73 to convince you. The psalmist, he understands, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he understands what he wants and needs is God himself, the person of God himself. And so it's about supremacy. What, what What is supreme in your heart as an affection? But there's nothing on earth ultimately that he desires besides God. That God, the Father, Son, and Spirit would be your deepest affection. Now, let me try to word it in a way that tries to 
make sense of how to do this while we have so many other loves in life. I think a fair and healthy way to think of it is in terms of consolation. Consolation. Here's what I mean. Uh, Do you know when you're in situations and you can't get everything you want, but you're okay because you're still able to get the one thing out of the many things that you ideally would like, but you're able to get that one thing, and that makes you happy even though you don't get the other things that were on your list. I think we've all been through situations like that. Just a simple, trivial example. Let's say you have a family outing planned. You're looking forward to a day at the beach, let's say, with your family, but then it gets rained out. The forecast turns. Do you just cancel the dedicated time with family? No. For me, as long as I get to be with my family and do something enjoyable, albeit indoors, and I'm with them, then I'm still supremely happy. I didn't get the beach, but I got the beautiful consolation, which is to be with my family. That's the point. The psalmist is getting at something similar with God, that God himself is the consolation. What is your one and ultimate consolation in life? Just speaking for myself in my own life, I have to test, is it my children? Is it my marriage? Is it my vocational success? For some of you, maybe your grandchildren. Maybe it's marriage, like I said. Maybe it's singleness. Maybe it's health, wealth, social status, control, vacations. I mean, we could just go on and on. Again, you got to do the hard work like the psalmist to search your own heart. But we need to ask ourselves, what's my, if I'm honest, what's my supreme consolation? Is it really God himself? Just to have the embrace of God and a personal relationship with him in my life. Now you and I, the spirit was drawing the psalmist into the sanctuary of God to see that God himself is the consolation, but you and I have even a a clear picture of that, how it's meant to become our joy. Why? Because where we're at, the vantage point in history We have Jesus. We know that Jesus was and is the ultimate fulfillment of what the psalmist was longing for. Look, my children may not follow the Lord until the end. I don't know. I can't guarantee that, right? But I still have Jesus and my eternity with him in his love, in the new heavens and the new earth, and with his church and the Father's love. And I have to believe with the psalmist that Jesus as my consolation is truly better than that. I may not experience the level of material abundance and financial freedom that I would like to while on this earth, but I joyfully have Jesus and will reign with him in eternity as a vice king under the banner of his eternal glory. With the psalmist, I have to believe that Jesus is my consolation. That's why the psalmist refers to God as his portion. God is the all-satisfying consolation, the joy-giving portion that the psalmist comes to his senses and realizes as he's in the sanctuary, this is my consolation. This is my joy. Let me just give you just another analogy, metaphor. It's, it's like dessert. 
If you're like me, you'd rather just eat dessert than you have a sweet tooth. We all know, though, that ultimately can't live off of dessert. You need, as some parents say, and I need to remind myself, you need growing food, Albert. (laughs) You need the nutrient-rich proteins, carbs, fibers, healthy fats, vitamins, minerals. You need the main course, the real meal, not just the sugary desserts. Now, every blessing in this life, every good thing from God, it's like a wonderful dessert. It's to be enjoyed. It's from him. Every blessing, however, every dessert, apart from resting in the love of the Father for you, for you through Jesus, it's just like dessert. It's great, it's sweet, but it's not the real meal. It's not the final real life. And so how does the psalmist conclude? Let's go back to verse 16. He worshiped God. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. You see how the psalmist felt weary as he kept comparing himself to people out there? As he kept envying, he felt weary. He felt tired. He knew he needed God's grace. If we stay stuck in comparison, envy, coveting the success of this life, in this life alone and being tempted to live as God rejectors do, then you will stay weary. You will be chained to the never-ending treadmill of performance and having to one-up another person and comparison. He needed God's grace. He knew that. So he went to the sanctuary and he found that grace as he worshiped God. I hope today as you're here worshiping, you're experiencing and feeling some grace, some comfort and confidence that you are God's beloved and being able to rest in that. And he found true grace, true rest, when God himself became his delight, his consolation. And we know this again, when we see, how do you know someone loves you? When they give their entire self to you. When they think of you completely first. And God has done that. Even as His son lamented on the cross. God was giving his entire self to you and me. And so God saves us from the brokenness and futility of the original covenant of Adam's work failed, 1.0. And he calls us to delight in life, 3.0. The psalmist remembers that the judgment of God will come quickly and suddenly But you and I, we can be assured that we will pass that judgment. We we will come through and be loved. So whom am I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Let's pray. Lord, we say with the psalmist, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom do I desire in heaven but you? And what do I have on earth besides you? Jesus is our great consolation. 
And so help us to live on earth well. Lord, I pray, especially for those who are suffering, that you would help us to live on earth well by keeping an eye on eternity well. Help us to be comforted with the psalmist. Lord, he was so honest that he was embittered, and yet you held him continually. You never gave up on him. You didn't abandon him. Even in his silliness of envying, you're faithful in covenant to him. And we know that this is ultimately ours and true as we look to Jesus Christ. So help us live on earth well. Uh, we keep an eye on eternity well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.